in Jesus' final hours, before the events of Good Friday, we find him in the Gospels praying to his Father. These are significant moments for Jesus, and it's curious as to what is on his mind right now. On the brink of death, John's gospel has Jesus praying, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. In Christ's final moments, before the events of his passion and crucifixion, What was on his heart and mind was us. That we would be united in a oneness just like the oneness which is experienced in the Godhead. Clearly the unity of his followers is on Jesus' heart, even in his direst of circumstances. And few metaphors or illustrations capture this idea of being one better than when Paul uses the picture of the the church being one body. Just like a human body is composed of various appendages and organs, yet all of these parts as a whole make up a human body, the same can be said for the church, which is made up of a variety of people, yet together and united make up the body of Christ. Last week, when we looked at what it means to be a part of the family of God, we touched on the unity aspect of being a part of the household of God. We talked about Christ being the peace between human beings, and because of this peace ushered in by the cross of Christ, there comes a unity or harmony that participants of the family of God should strive for. And later on in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul identifies the church as a body to capture the sort of union Christians are called to maintain. And if you've been a part of the church for a bit you've likely heard the church described as the body of Christ. This imagery or metaphor is thrown a lot lot around in Christian lingo. Some churches speak of it more often when they partake of Holy Communion, when the bread or the body of Christ is broken and consumed. But I fear little time is set aside to really think about what we are saying when we say the church is the body of Christ. Perhaps it may have lost its meaning or its gravitas. While much could be said from this text this morning, I'm going to try to nail down three takeaways for you all concerning our role as participants in the body of Christ because picture this church, we are the body of Christ. Have you ever considered your involvement as a part of the church as a calling? We may speak of calling when we talk about vocations or careers. However, I don't think we stop to consider that being a part of the body of Christ is actually a calling that God places on each person who makes a profession of faith and desires to become a part of the family of God. This is how the Apostle Paul speaks to the Ephesians about being members of the body of Christ. He tells them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. 
In fact, they all seem to share this calling. It seems to be a collective calling. And while the church is made up of different kinds of people with different appearances and careers and ages and life experience, all people in the church share the same divine calling to work towards oneness as a body. God calls those of us who are in the church to maintain something that God himself has given us. As the church, we did not create this. This is not something humans were probably capable of concocting. Paul tells the church in Ephesus they are responsible to take care of, to guard, and to keep the unity of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who created the church's unity And it's the same Holy Spirit that calls each of us now to maintain it. All of the Ephesian Christians, not just the Ephesian pastors, not just the Ephesian church leadership, all the Ephesian Christians are called by God to carefully maintain the God-given gift of unity, which is the oneness of the church as Christ's body. And Paul even lists out a few characteristics to describe living worthy of this divine calling. And so the question is, do these characterize you? Living worthy of this calling is a oneness that entails humility. A humility in this sense is a rethinking of oneself as lowly as opposed to arrogant. A self-emptying of oneself, much like Paul describes Jesus in his letter to the Philippians. Someone living worthy of this calling is gentle or meek. They are opposed to wrath and vengeance. They choose forgiveness. They live without bitterness or spite. Living worthy of this calling to oneness entails patience, which is better understood as long-suffering. This is the ability to endure the difficulty and irritability of other people. But these are just the inward components. There are outward ones as well. Paul says that we are to bear with one another in love. At least that's how our English translations have it. But it sounds a bit too much like a cheesy Christian wall decoration for my taste. Perhaps that's why we often disregard this as an imperative of Christian unity. A better way of translating what Paul is saying is putting up with other people in love. (laughs) I love that it's a little bit more on the nose. You probably wouldn't hang that up in your kitchens. But this is what Paul is saying. The Christian life is a life of putting up with other people, and it's motivated by a love. A love that wasn't founded on emotions or feelings. A love not void of cost or hard work. A love not dependent upon prerequisites or stipulations. Rather, a love that was first modeled to us by Christ himself that he now beckons us to imitate because we love because he first loved us. This other-oriented mindset is coupled with an eagerness to keep the unity of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells the Ephesian Christians to be energized or zealous for maintaining this God-given unity. Preservations of this unity should be a top priority. They must be vigilant towards it, attentive to it, willing to invest time and energy into its continuation to keep it from falling prey to attack, distortion, or neglect. It can't be ignored or shelved. And taking our cue from Christ himself, who forged peace between humanity and God and humanity with each other, Christians are now called to be active peacemakers like Jesus and consciously maintaining the oneness of the body of Christ. And like the Ephesians, we share the same divine calling. 
Like the Ephesians, we share in the responsibility of being people recognized by these traits. And the question is, are we willing to answer and live into the calling that the Spirit has laid onto each and every one of us? To be people striving for oneness of unity, not numbness concerning unity. In our world today, where it seems that Christians appear to have nothing in common except name alone, perhaps the word from the Lord this morning is that we do share something. We share a calling, a calling towards oneness and unity, just as we share alongside one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Can the church be of one accord in answering the call for unity? Imagine what it would look like if Christians actually embodied what it looks like to live worthy of this calling. Imagine what our social media feeds and online platforms, our classrooms and school board meetings, our workplaces and job sites, our town hall meetings and chambers of government. Imagine what our world would look like if all Christians recognized this God-given calling to do something in all of their power to preserve the oneness of the body of Christ and the ripple effect that would have on our society as a whole. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if we did that? When people come together for a common cause, when people rally around a unified calling, I think we surprise ourselves at what human beings can accomplish together when we defy the odds and the critics and achieve something monumental. I ran across this interesting news story. It's an old news story about a farmer named Herman Ostry. Herman actually lived in Bruno, Nebraska, which is southeast of Columbus. And so I figured you all probably would enjoy a story about a fellow corn husker every once in a while, and I found you one. And in the 1980s, Herman had a problem. His antique barn continually got flooded. And he joked with his family that they, he had enough people they could lift the estimated 20,000-pound antique barn the few feet necessary to put it on to stable ground. Take a look at this video clip about Herman. Come early, stay late. Your memories will linger on and on forever. This is Herman Ostry and it was his idea to move a 20,000-pound barn with only manpower. Because of new road construction, Herman Ostry's barn from the 1920s kept flooding. In 1988, he asked for volunteers to help move it by hand. Thousands turned out in Bruno, Nebraska to watch. Many thought the plan would fail, but Herman was always confident. 100% that it's going to work. Our maker. <laughs> okay, everyone, all together, slowly and steadily live. There she goes, people. 344 people signed up and methodically lifted and walked the nearly 20-ton barn 115 feet to its new location. Herman Ostry is still frustrated by one thing, though. Everybody thought it was important except the Guinness Book. The Guinness Book of Records rejected the Austries' application because using human muscle to move a barn is not an activity of widespread interest. What would Herman say now if the Guinness people showed up? Come on, Diane.
I believe that if we took the call for maintaining the, maintaining the unity of the Spirit seriously collectively, we all can, with God's help, lift the body of Christ out of the danger zone of being continually flooded with discord, strife, and even hostilities whenever the storms of life threaten her. I believe we can do that with God's help. Because I don't know about you, but I'm growing discouraged and disheartening to see the body of Christ plummet into disarray after every new news cycle. It has come to a point that we all seem to tense up when the next crisis befalls us and we brace the repercussions or the damage it has on the church as a whole and we're left scratching our heads as to the solution. But what if we banded together, church? embodying the traits and characteristics Paul mentions in this text, and we answered the call for unity together, I believe that we can accomplish this impossible task, much like lifting a 20,000-pound barn, and the critics on the outside of the church and even insiders will question whether it's possible, but I believe that if we all band together, we can do it. Because the head of the body of Christ is known for doing the impossible. If we all get in line with what the head is doing, maybe the body of Christ can be lifted to safety. Because Paul makes the claim that each of us were given gifts by Christ to use towards answering the call of maintaining unity. And by God's infinite grace, each member of the body of Christ's gift is sufficient and up to the task. Paul has gifted every Ephesian with a gifting to maintain the unity of the church. And note that this is not a one-man or one-woman show. Christ did not give this gifting to one certain individual to fulfill this calling. Maturity involves community as a whole, not merely particular individuals. But nor does Christ give only pastors and theologians and church leaders this gifting to answer this call. Too often when we read this passage, we assume that what Paul is talking about coincides or overlaps with the vocational and ministry journey God has for the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, but that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that this calling, but also the gifting to achieve this calling is given to all the Ephesian believers. He says that Jesus has given his church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. These people are tasked with helping the members of the body of Christ best utilize their Christ-given gifts. And just like Paul himself, serving the Ephesian Christians, pastors and Christian teachers today do the same things with the members of the body of Christ by coming alongside them and assisting them to edify them to live worthy of the calling of unity, but also to engage with the gifts that they've been given. And so it is the head of the body of Christ that graces each and every one of us, pastors and laity alike, to work properly, to make the body grow. We all have a special and a unique part to play. We all bring something to the table. And whether you realize it or not, you contribute to the unity of the body of Christ and how you utilize your God-given gifts. But here's the key. And listen carefully, because I think this is where we actually get the cart before the horse. We aren't supposed to use our gifts without consulting the head. Or to say it another way, we must guard against using our gifts haphazardly without carefully considering the person and agenda of Jesus Christ. If we are not mindful, we could be a church with its head cut off. A headless body, in other words. 
Paul tells the Ephesians that the body of Christ is meant to end up growing into the head, which is the person of Jesus Christ. And to us, it may seem like Paul doesn't quite know what human anatomy is because human bodies don't grow into a human head, do they not? But what Paul is saying is that only from the head do human bodies receive direction and life. A body disconnected from a head cannot function, but a body that builds each other up with loving kindness develops into the fullness of Christ. The more we are joined together, joint by joint, to use Paul's language, we inevitably result in each of us looking more like the head, which we're growing into, which is Jesus Christ. Each part of the body should have signs and indications that you are directly linked to its command center, which is our Lord and Savior. In September of 1945, Lloyd Olson and his wife Clara were killing chickens on their farm in Colorado. Olson would decapitate the birds and his wife would clean them up. But one of the 40 or, out of the 40 or 50 chickens that went under Olson's hatchet that day didn't behave like the rest. One of the headless chickens named Mike the Headless Chicken or Miracle Mike lived for 18 months without a noggin because Lloyd axed off his head and missed the jugular vein. Miracle Mike was given milk and water mixture through an eyedropper until he inevitably visited his death about a year later when he choked on a kernel of corn. Poultry physiologists and neurobiologists, which I did not know existed until I looked at this story, explain that part of the reason that a chicken can live without its head has to do with its skeletal anatomy. The brain of a chicken is shoved upwards into its skull at an angle of about 45 degrees. This means that at some point, some of the brain may be sliced away, but the very important part can potentially remain. And apparently slicing below the eyes is the key. So everyone be taking notes here when you're beheading chickens. But what this means is that under very specific circumstances, you may end up with a lobotomized chicken on your hands depending where you slice. An alive chicken for sure, but missing quite a few important parts of its brain. How long do you think a headless body of Christ could survive? If we do not do the hard, if we, if we, if we do the hard work and we live into the calling of the unity and work together, but we don't have Jesus as our head, it'll all be for nothing. We'll try to survive as long as we can without a head, much like Miracle Mike, but inevitably something will choke us. Or we'll be tempted to substitute a different head in its vacancy. A headless church is not a viable or sustainable church. We need a head. We must have a head, and it must be Jesus. We need Jesus to be the center of everything we do as a church. As a church, both globally and locally, we need Jesus to be the one calling the shots. We need Jesus to be the one we look to when we are making decisions and choices for how we are going to be his hands and feet in this world. We need to see the world through his eyes. We need to feel the pulse of his heart. We need Jesus to be the one orchestrating the workings of the church, not some other head and definitely not us. As you play your part and utilize your gift, you are pushing or pulling the body of Christ either further or closer to its head. As you contribute to the ministry of the body of Christ, do you take your direction from Jesus, who is our head, or are you taking your directions from a different head, 
When outsiders see you as part of the body of Christ, is it obvious that you are an appendage or an organ of the body of Christ because you are clearly linked to Jesus? Because according to the Apostle Paul, the thread is, if we are not growing into the stature of the fullness of Christ, we are susceptible to childish mistakes and trappings. We are to work jointly together to move the body of Christ towards adulthood or mature manhood, as my translation has it. Notice that Paul extends the picture of the church to also encompass not only the oneness of a human body, but also to include the normal stages of growth and development every human body and mind experiences over the course of time. It appears that just as human beings walk through life growing and maturing from what it takes in and experiences, the same can be said in essence of the body of Christ as it has walked through centuries of human history and the countless deposits that previous saints have put in during their time walking worthy of this corporate calling. And now we, just like the Ephesians before us, are encouraged to join in walking worthy of this calling of church unity but we get to make our deposits by using our gifts. Maturity for the body of Christ is the end game in contrast to a potential for the church to be immature like a toddler or infant. If we are not careful, the body of Christ could easily regress or slip into an immature state where we are tossed to and fro, blown here or there, or to say it another way, easily deceived by charlatans, tricksters, false teachers, conspiracy theorists, and schemes of the enemy. Paul would say something similar to the Colossians when he told them, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. Paul and others, including Jesus himself, elsewhere will use the picture of Christians being children in a more positive light, but that's not the case for this, for Paul right here. Paul wants the body of Christ to grow up, and we should all want that as well. Children are easily tricked since they lack the knowledge or experience necessary to protect themselves from deceitful persons or false teachers. And if we stay too childish, we'll be taken captive by the truths of this world or the evil one instead of the truths of Jesus. Paul does not want the body of Christ to remain in this vulnerable position because it invites disunity and fracturing when, and when untruth metabolizes itself within the body of Christ. That is so dangerous. When the church falls prey to distortions of the truth, it subverts our witness in this world, it invites mockery from outside critics, and ultimately it stifles our growth towards the end goal of being like Jesus. The body of Christ cannot and should not claim a permanent residence in Neverland. While Neverland is a magical place filled with mermaids and pirates and lost boys, it's also a place where you never grow up. And when Wendy and her brothers are invited to tour Neverland, they discover that their host, Peter Pan, is a boy who never ages. And while at first glance, Peter's life of adventure and carelessness of a perpetual childhood seem enticing, by the end of the story, J.M. Barry's Peter Pan is actually a critique of never growing up. Peter's negative traits from never growing up, rear their ugly head throughout the story. Peter never takes responsibility for his actions. Peter has no problem leaving the darlings and going on new adventures without them. He forgets their names when he returns. Peter is arrogant and honestly selfish. He only wants to hear stories from Wendy about himself. Peter picks fights with enemies and pirates that he shouldn't. 
Peter forgets his promises, much like when he vowed to visit Wendy. Peter can't differentiate between the real world and the make-believe world. There are a lot of flaws that never growing up that afflict, that afflict Peter. And so he refuses to grow up. He doesn't want to grow up. It's too much fun, as he, as he says. And this is Peter's choice to never leave, never land. But Paul warns the Ephesians that if they, including Paul himself, mind you, he includes himself in this, if they allow the body of Christ to revert to an infancy state, if they let the body of Christ never leave, never land, and grow up, they will make the church vulnerable to the schemes of the devil and worldly influences. All the Ephesians will be culpable if Christ's body succumbs to such threats as a result of them not helping the body of Christ grow up. And the same warning applies to all of us as well. It is up to us as to whether the body of Christ matures or regresses. It is up to us as to whether it, our contributions stimulate growth or foster shrinkage. It is up to us if we allow the body of Christ to act like a mature adult or an immature child in response to the crises and turbulence that come from this life. Paul is not specific in our text this morning about the threat. Paul does not offer us a concrete example as to what he worries may infiltrate the Ephesian church if they're not mature enough to repel it. And I'm not about to offer my best guesses at what Paul thinks would be false teaching today. But Paul is serious that the danger exists in the first place. Paul worries about false teachings because they lead to false practices, which in turn draw people away from the true fellowship of Christ and his church. Is what you're contributing through your God-given gifts and abilities, making the church globally, but also the church locally, more mature and a better imitator of our Lord. But what you say and do by your words and actions, are you helping the church to grow up or remain childish? Here, this church, if one member of the body is still immature, the whole church will suffer. When your foot falls asleep, it makes it awfully hard to do the rest of what you're wanting to do with your body until it wakes up and gets with the program because one bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. Imagine what we could do to our division problems in our church, but also our nation, if we live worthy of the calling to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Imagine what our church would look like if we properly fitted our head, Jesus Christ, firmly upon our shoulders. Imagine where we'd be if we did not let our childish mistakes and habits stifle the church's growth and witness in this world. Being one body is a calling on each of us. But this calling for unity in the body of Christ is not a passive experience, church. It's an active one that we live into each and every day. This text reminds believers that one body is not simply a theological doctrine, but it is a reality that the church is encouraged to live, to live by. We are not simply to pay lip service to this picture of the church. Rather, we are actually told to work towards it. And so picture this church. We are to grow up into every way, into him who is the head, into Christ. So be the body of Christ, church.